To help us sort out this story, I'm very pleased to welcome Madawi Al-Rashid. Professor Al-Rashid is a visiting professor at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and she joins me now by phone um, from London. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start out just by briefly setting the stage here. Is this, um, is everything we've seen in the last week, is it a culmination of a competition for power that began with King Abdullah's death in 2015? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, in 2015, uh, we saw how many um, uh, crown princes failed to become kings after Salman uh, became king. So he immediately sacked his brother Migrin, who was the crown prince, um, and um, appointed Mohammed bin Nayef, who is uh, much younger. But we see that in recent times, he also got rid of Mohammed bin Nayef and promoted his own son, Mohammed bin Salman, otherwise known as MBS. So there has been a change at the level of succession in Saudi Arabia. Historically, the succession went from uh, one person to his brother. But with uh, King Salman in 2015, we see that there was a move towards making it go from father to son along the European model of monarchy. And there are several reasons for this. Uh, first, uh, the brothers of Salman are old, and none of the remaining ones are actually uh, good enough to become kings. So Salman didn't uh, face a great opposition when he sidelined all his remaining brothers. Now, um, he, his choice of Mohammed bin Salman, the youngest son, was controversial. He uh, immediately placed him in high position, such as uh, Minister of Defense, uh, first initially as Deputy Crown Prince, but then became Crown Prince. He uh, amassed so much power in his hands and maintaining his control over the media, uh, over the military apparatus of the Saudi regime, the intelligence services, which paved the way for the recent uh, detentions. And I would imagine that the detention of the commander of the Saudi Arabian National Guard uh, Prince Mithar bin Abdullah was actually the removal of the last rival of that generation of cousins of Mohammed bin Salman who can potentially challenge his leadership simply because they are in command of troops on the ground, such as the SANG or the Saudi Arabian National uh, uh, Guard. Now, MBS's moves have been described as a departure from long-standing norms of Saudi government governance, um, which tended to stress, I guess, a sometimes difficult process of creating some consensus within the royal family. Can you talk about that briefly? Yes, well, at the moment, we can't really talk about consensus. Mohammed bin Salman has shattered the consensus of the Saudi royal family because he, uh, the senior uh, princes who had been detained, this is unprecedented um, in the history of the Saudi state uh, to get people like uh, Commander Mithab bin Abdullah or entrepreneur uh, Al-Walid bin Talal uh, or even other princes, uh, he detained 11 so far, um, is unprecedented. The only time we've had princes detained is when they committed uh, criminal acts uh, and they would be like uh, put in, in ha under house arrest. 
And even the ones who challenged the rule of the Al Saud in the 1950s and 60s, such as the Free Princes, um, uh, eventually there was a pardon. They became, they came back to Saudi Arabia. They were invited um, to come back, and they were forgiven. But this detention, even if there are uh, no char- serious charges, it's just undermined the status of these other princes and proved to the world and to Saudis that there's only one man who's running the show in Saudi Arabia, and that is Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, what is bin Salman's vision 2030? And what do you make of the claims that this move to consolidate power was a means of um, overcoming resistance to the kind of sweeping change that he envisions for um, the Saudi kingdom, that he was uh, trying to overcome uh, defenders of the status quo? Well, there are multiple issues here. Uh, Saudi Vision 2030 um, builds on previous development projects in Saudi Arabia, and it's not that new. Uh, For example, privatization had already started in Saudi Arabia. Saudization, and that is replacing the expatriate labor force with Saudis, had always been uh, part of the government policy since the 1970s. However, what's new in this uh, vision is the following. The IPO that is planned for Aramco, the oil company, um, it's not going to happen soon because the project is stumbling and they still don't know whether they're going to do it in New York or in London or possibly the Chinese are going to buy a, a huge chunk of it. So this is up in the air. But this is the novelty of this uh, vision that it touches the oil sector, which is the main economic sector in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia depends on oil for at least like 75% of its income. So Mohammed bin Salman's vision is to float 5% of the oil company. The other aspect of Mohammed bin Salman's vision is to engineer social change from above, which means that he envisages Saudi Arabia to become more open in order to attract foreign investors. Uh, For his projects to succeed, at least the economic one, he needs an open society, an open environment. However, the openness that we have seen so far is very superficial. So women's driving is extremely important. But the real question is why have Saudi women uh, been denied the right to drive until the 21st century? And there are other rights that they have not got But uh, the driving ban um, is very sensational. And as everybody knows, hundreds of articles in the Western media have been written about it as if it is the culmination of a great social transformation or revolution, which in fact is, is not the case because there are certain restrictions, legal issues that need to be resolved. Then thirdly, there is the uh, claim that Mohammed bin Salman wants to start a moderate Islam, bringing back Saudi Arabia to a kind of religious moderation. And here, when he announced that, he was actually not very, very uh, accurate when it comes to history. The Saudi regime has always been built on a radical uh, version of Islam, namely the Salafis or the Wahhabis. And to claim, as he did, that since 1979, Saudis became radical as a result of Iran, thus blaming it on Iran, this is totally 
untrue because those of us who spend most of the, our time uh, reading uh, the archives and looking at Saudi history, we realize that this is absolute rubbish. It's not true at all. Saudi Arabia had always been uh, radical. But let's, let's uh, assume that he's going to make Saudi Arabia uh, endorse uh, moderate Islam. How is he going to do it when he has actually uh, put in prison so many religious scholars and clerics who are not radical at all? To give you one example, uh, cleric Salman Al-Auda, who was associated with, with this Islamist trend, uh, recently announced that we, can't, we do not and cannot prosecute homosexuals in this world. Let's just leave it as a topic and not actually enforce a, a, a punishment or impose punishment on those people. So this kind of development in, in religious thinking had been uh, objected to by uh, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who put this religious cleric in prison in September together with a whole range of other people. So, for example, there is the founders of a Saudi civil society by the name of Hassan, which means the Civil and Political Association in Saudi Arabia. Uh, since 2009, they've been imprisoned simply because they formed an independent civil society calling for human rights. So when Salman became king, he did not pardon them. When Mohammed bin Salman became crown prince, he continued to put them in prison. Some of them are above uh, 75 year old and they're going to die in prison simply because they dare to ask for civil and political rights in Saudi Arabia and express their opinion. So this repression is really not the right environment to create moderate Islam. This is Joshua Holland, and I'm speaking with Professor Madawi Al-Rashid from the London School of Economics and Political Science. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the driving issue because that really did get so much positive press in the, in the so much positive uh, coverage in the in the Western media. <clears throat> Some observers pointed out that the decree only tasked a, a ministerial committee to study how it could be done consistently with um, the Saudi interpretation of Islamic law. And others said it was a kind of a distraction from the, the regime's um, human rights record. Let me ask you this. Uh, this crackdown has been couched as an assault on corruption. How do you define corruption in a, in a monarchy where the line between the, the royal family and the state is so fuzzy? And is that framing something that's resonating with the Saudi public? Yes. Well, the Saudi public had cheered this move that uh, now we're having a new policy whereby uh, anybody who's suspected of uh, being corrupt is going to be detained, put on trial. But one thing that uh, dictators usually do, if they want to get rid of their opponents or rivals, they can always fabricate a, 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 a kind of case against them and claim that they are corrupt and put them in prison. And we've seen this in other countries, from China to Iran to other places. And therefore, Mohammed bin Salman is not doing anything new. And by putting his rivals, in, in, in detaining them under the pretext of fighting anti-corruption, He's trying to entertain, sort of like uh, uh, augment his popularity in the eyes of the Saudi public and also the foreign investors. But this had proved to be counterproductive because we, real, we found that since the detention, uh, which took place on the 4th of November, the Saudi stock market was declining and uh, a lot of people are uh, abroad who may have 
uh, considered investing in Saudi are thinking about, you know, the rule of law and what it means to do business and put a lot of money uh, in a country that, uh, that lacks transparency, that lacks uh, the rule of law and an independent judiciary. And those foreign investors in the U.S., in Europe, in Japan, in other places must think twice about investing in a country like Saudi Arabia when you actually don't know what will happen to your money. In the short term, these investors may make a lot of money, but at any minute they could be detained and put in the Ritz-Carlton or even worse, in the Saudi Al-Hayr prison for any reason, because this autocrat is proved to be erratic, young, and in a hurry to make a lot of money. But at the expense of people who have lost their liberty um, under the pretext of fighting uh, corruption or even under the pretext of fighting the war on terror. So he claimed when in September, when all those people were detained, professionals, activists, religious scholars, that they were all radical. And this is absolutely not true. According to Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, those people have not been involved in violence. In fact, a lot of them have been just peaceful critics of the, of the regime. And some of them are not even critic. Some of them have abstained from applauding every policy that Mohammed bin Salman had, had introduced, and they were punished for their silence. I'm going to switch tacks here a little bit and talk about the U.S. relationship with the Saudi regime, with MBS. Um, he has been embraced as a reformer by the Washington, D.C. foreign policy establishment. The Trump regime has adopted a kind of they haven't said this much, but they've adopted an unspoken Saudi first Middle East policy. In part, I think that's a reflection of their hawkish view towards Iran. And a number of analysts have argued that the administration's kind of uncritical embrace of MBS uh, and, and of King Salman bin Abdulaziz has emboldened the prince and given him the sense that he can um, make these kind of radical changes without any repercussions from the from the outside world. Is, is that your view or are we giving Washington uh, too much credit for its influence over these events? Well, there are two uh, issues here. Uh, quite a lot of the stuff that is going in Saudi Arabia, very pleasant things like detentions, repression, and uh, sidelining of princes. This has got to do with the uh, domestic uh, uh, power struggle in Saudi Arabia at the very top level, i.e. at the level of the royal family. But Mr. Trump, since he became president, he had given positive signals to Mohammed bin Salman, especially in his uh, regional policies. And here there are two examples. The first one is in Yemen. Trump remained silent on Saudi atrocities and airstrikes in Yemen in as much as Mr. Obama had been. Uh, both uh, presidents had not actually made any noise to warn Saudis again, uh, uh, for the humanitarian crisis that they had precipitated in Yemen. So um, and the other crisis that happened since Mr. Trump became president is the crisis with Qatar. And here, Mr. Trump has just simply endorsed what the Saudis told him in Riyadh when he visited. And, um, and they told him uh, that, well, Qatar is the one that sponsors terrorism. And he seemed to have repeated that like a parrot. 
I'm sorry to say, without any kind of investigation. And, and here we have a situation where he was uh, trying to endear the prince. And I think they have a lot in common. So Mohammed bin Salman is a young version of Mr. Trump. They both think that money could solve all problems. So when he became president, he simply looked down on those Gulf people and the Gulf governments. And he said that they only have money. There's nothing else. And if we can't, uh, we, if we can't get some of this money, they're not worth being our, becoming and remaining our partners in the Middle East. And Hamad bin Salman has the same vision. He thinks that with his money, he could actually buy the world, buy power, buy status, and you know, destroy Yemen, and also made Qatar a, a dependent uh, a state, little state that uh, simply follows uh, his orders. But all of this hasn't happened. Um, and Hamad bin Salman is actually uh, in, uh, miscalculated this war in Yemen. And three years later, he hasn't brought the Houthis, his rivals in Yemen, uh, who are supported by the uh, Iranians, down to their knees. At the same time, we find that since June 2017, the Qatar crisis is ongoing. The Qatar emir hasn't been uh, uh, expelled from the country. The Qataris are not starving. In fact, what Mohammed bin Salman wanted is to limit Iranian influence in the Arabian Peninsula. What he has done with the crisis in Qatar is make Qatar actually closer to Iran than to its neighbors in the Gulf, specifically Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, uh, and the United Arab Emirates. So quite a lot of these policies that Mohammed bin Salman has started are backfiring, and he must be feeling actually the pressure. Um, he is in short of money. Um, despite Saudi Arabia's wealth, oil prices are still low. And for his projects, especially, for example, Neom City, which is like a, a phantasmagoria of a city that he plans to build by the, uh, on the Red Sea and uh, it's run by robots. It's almost like science fiction. These kind of projects are not generating employment for these uh, young Saudis, and apparently 70% of them are under the age of 30. He even stated that his project on the Red Sea is not meant to uh, generate employment for the Saudis. It's going to be a global hub like Dubai, whereby you, know, you will have to rely on foreign labor, foreign technology and expertise in order to make it happen. And it's not really clear how this particular city is going to benefit Saudis, not to mention the destruction of the environment and the, um, uh, the uh, pollution that it is going to create. And nobody knows whether it actually will have any uh, residents in it. There are so many other models and failed experiments in building these cities in Saudi Arabia that remain empty. However, by starting these projects, a lot of people benefit economically, financially, including Hamad bin Salman. Imagine the management consultancy firms, the bankers uh, around the globe that are now wanting to be involved in order to cut deals and benefit. But whether this is beneficial for the country remains to be seen. That is remarkable. And I, I should just note that there's been a lot of speculation about Jared Kushner visiting MBS just shortly before uh, this consolidation of power. People are talking about the possibility that Trump has interests in backing MBS other than 
um, the obvious uh, geopolitical interest in terms of putting the squeeze on Iran. So the regional context here seems a little bit bewildering on its face. It looks like MBS is taking a recklessly aggressive stance toward Iran um, at a moment where, as you mentioned, they're in the midst of this Saudi campaign in Yemen uh, that's been condemned for its civilian casualties. The resignation of Saeed Hariri has plunged Lebanon into chaos. Is there a method to all of this, or is this about being young and brash and inexperienced? Well, he's got ambition to be the final uh, first and last arbiter of Arab affairs from Beirut to uh, Sana'a. Uh, but this is not going to happen. Um, and it's not going to happen for all sorts of reasons. Uh, one of them is that Iran is there and it is there to stay in the Middle East. And uh, should Mohammed bin Salman be interested in uh, peace and security in this region, he should come to uh, uh, the negotiating table with Iran to discuss how they could divide this region into different zones where they practice spheres of influence and also refrain from interfering in other Arab countries' internal affairs. But it's not going to happen because every time uh, we think that there is a way out of this uh, rivalry, which sounds like as if it's an eternal rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, we have a setback. So the latest setback was uh, Saudi regime, who some, they summoned Saad al-Hariri, the prime minister, who's very, very close to the Saudi regime historically as a result of his father's financial interest, but also he's a Saudi citizen. He has dual uh, nationality, so he's Lebanese and Saudi at the same time. And so he summoned him to Riyadh, where he uh, announced his resignation. And throughout history, no prime minister would resign from another country unless he's trying to form a government in exile or during uh, wartime. So Saad al-Hariri undermined himself, but he, perhaps he didn't have a choice. He was summoned and, declared, and announced that uh, unexpectedly and abruptly that he is uh, his resign. And the resignation is very important because Lebanon spent like two years without a president. And until they arrived at a kind of agreement between uh, the various factions in the country, um, uh, they formed a government and got a president elected. So uh, Saad al-Hariri uh, gives the regime in Lebanon some kind of legitimacy because it means that all the factions, the sectarian groups, the Sunni, the Shia, the Christians are all uh, in government. So by, by pulling Saad al-Hariri from government, the Saudis hope uh, that the Lebanese political uh, agreement will collapse. And therefore, he, Hamad bin Salman, could blame Iran for that and Hezbollah. One final question before I let you go. There were a number of powerful figures arrested last weekend or detained. Uh, you mentioned Prince Metub uh, bin Abdullah, who had been seen as a possible successor to, successor to the throne. Uh, there was billionaire investor Prince Al-Walid bin Talal. How does this end? I mean, they're, they're being detained in a hotel, in a four-star hotel. Uh, they must have their own power bases. What is the end game here? They can't just detain well, nobody, them indefinitely, nobody right? Knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. According to the Saudi press, there would be fair trials in inverted commas, and um, you know they'd be sidelined or 
basically, you know, uh, disappear into uh, oblivion, like Mohammed bin Naib, who was, uh, you know, uh, expelled from his office uh, in July. And since then, we haven't heard anything about him. He has not spoken to the media. He hasn't appeared anywhere, which means that he's under house arrest somewhere in the kingdom or on an island in the Red Sea. So those 11 princes um, may face the same, uh, you know, fate. Um, in addition to all the Saudis who are detained, let's not forget, you know, it is very, very sad to see how the international community is so worried about those 11 princes. And we forget that there are hundreds of Saudis detained in Saudi prisons simply because of their opinion. So they are political prisoners. Professor, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to offer your insights into what's going on in Saudi Arabia right now. I really do appreciate it. Thank you.